Welcome to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 15, and I'm going to call this one The Journey of a Board. It comes after many, many questions and inquiries and just wonderings around, you know, when I go to the lumber yard and I pick up that board, where does that board come from? What are the steps that it's been through all the way back to the stump? And I can remember questions like this coming in even um, while we were still doing this on Wood Talk. And it's... I don't know. I suppose it's kind of a simple answer, but it's filled with so many different variables. So it's going to vary dramatically dependent upon the species you're talking about, where it comes from in the world, where you are in the world when you're buying it. But I do think that it's valuable to have an understanding of the steps that the board goes through. First and foremost, a lot of people kind of stamp their feet and cry and get upset about the cost of lumber. Lumber is not cheap. Hardwood, kiln-dried lumber is not cheap. There's no doubt. But if you have a better understanding of all the things that have been done to that board before it lands on that rack, you might not cry so much about the cost of that material because there is a lot of stuff that's going on upstream of that lumber rack from which you're purchasing. So let's, let's look all the way back to the forest. And I've had a couple questions about, you know, these days, is there such a thing as a, a wild forest anymore? Or is everything all plantation? And this gets to be a little bit of a gray area. I guess if you wanted to strictly define a plantation, it would be bare ground, you know, that for whatever reason had been clear cut and then had been planted specifically to be a forest. And in that instance, you have you know, trees planted very much like you would have any crops in, in nice, neat rows. And the manager, the forest manager, is pruning all of the undergrowth, pruning the lower branches because they want to grow board trees. They want trees that are going to have a nice, long, straight trunk without any branches because branches equal knots, and which equals defects in the board. So they're going to do everything they can to prune away those branches before they really form. Obviously, you can't do that if they've already formed. But if you catch them real, real early, they just stay as pin knots and the tree doesn't, uh, the grain doesn't so deform around a larger branch. So you can really prune those off and end up with a much straighter tree with greater sunlight, with management of the space in between the trees and everything and cutting back that undergrowth. You can go pretty straight trees, which yield pretty straight boards. Now that plantation is specifically designed to then be cut down over a period of time and then additional trees can be planted around it. So you have this philosophy of um, cedar trees or feeder trees. I've heard it put both ways, but most um, silvicultural plants refer to them as cedar trees. Uh, S-E-E-D, not C-E-D-A-R, the species cedar. Cedar as in seedlings, seeds, all that stuff. These cedar trees are laying around the drip line. And when you cut down a tree, the trees that are in that drip line, the cedar trees, will essentially benefit from the the lack of the tree you just cut down. The nutrients and things that were taken up by that tree you just cut down will now be absorbed by the trees, the cedar trees, within the drip line of the tree that was just taken down. So there's a way to very quickly recoup that area of forest that you just took down. In the plantation world, it kind of sort of works, but because that plantation was was planted from day one and rose and meant to be managed that way, a lot of times when you take one tree down, the cedar trees are not really perfectly ordered around it. 
in a traditional forest, you want to make sure that you've got trees that are growing up in the shadow of the tree you're about to take down so that when you do take it down, the additional light comes in and will foster greater growth, greater expansion of those cedar trees. So the whole idea of having a cedar tree really gets its its, its origins in managing an existing forest. But you will hear some people who refer to that, I don't know if you call it technology, not technology, uh, technique in the plantation system. So let's just call a plantation a plantation, you know, think of rows of crops. Um, Certainly there's a lot of gray area around that. And one can make a case for saying just about every forest that is managed for lumber is a plantation at this point. The real, I think, differentiation is a plantation will have trees when you cut trees down whether you've clear cut it or taken one tree at a time there's replanting going on so there's a longer term uh, process uh, that is entirely managed by man to have that tree uh, to have that forest grow up and replace the trees that you're that you're taking down by seeding it in a forest we let nature do its work and we let the um, the natural seeds that are dropped by the trees themselves seed the remaining trees around them. So there, there's not uh, an active going in and planting seeds to make the to new uh, trees grow up. When you take down that tree, and this is where that cedar tree comes into, into play. When you take down that tree, if there are cedar trees around its drip line, you know that that area of forest is going to benefit from taking that tree down, allowing the four, five, you know, one or two cedar trees around it to get more nourishment, to get more light, and to grow up and be big, strong adult trees that can later then be cut down. But you do not want to take down a tree unless it's got two to three cedar trees in the immediate area. Because if you do that, you're going to end up with, you know, a hole in the canopy. And the natural seeding of that hole may or may not happen. Um, The undergrowth may just go nuts with the additional sunlight, and it could choke out any additional saplings that want to poke their way through. So it's really, really important in the the managed forest, the non-plantation setting, to have those cedar trees. And that is part of any lumber concession Every single tree on that concession is it has a skew number, if you will. We we know every single tree on that concession, and every single tree has a have a harvest date, if you will. And the only time you say, okay, you know, tree X Y Z one two three is now ready for harvest, and you go out and you find that tree. These days, a lot of times those trees are actually GPS labeled, so you follow on your GPS signal out to that tree, and then you look around and say, okay. My concession plan calls calls for at least four cedar trees in order to fell this, and the cedar trees need to be of such a state of, of maturation. So you look around and you find how many cedar trees we have. How, how do they look? Are they healthy? Are they going to... Um, take the place of the tree I'm about to take down? And if the answer to that is no, and and again, this will vary from concession to concession, um, say you've got three or four points that need to be hit. And if if you can't hit all those, then you cannot harvest that tree. You have to wait till all those particular um, variables are met so you can feel comfortable taking down the mature tree, knowing that the forest is going to reclaim those nutrients and continue to grow up around it. So there's, there's a lot to this, just cutting down this tree. In the plantation realm, you have a large area of land that you are actively reseeding. In many instances, while you may not be clear cutting, you're taking out um, 
all the trees in a specific area, which I suppose would be clear cutting, but maybe you're only taking a quarter of the area that you've planted, Uh, but you're still clear cutting because then you can go back in and replant and have all the trees grow up at once. That works definitely works really well for softwoods because that's how softwoods like to grow. They kind of grow in clumps. And when you seed it, you're kind of like seeding grass seed, like a broadcast spreader, just throwing seed everywhere. And the trees grow up in really, really big clumps and they kind of uh, thin themselves as they continue to grow up. In a hardwood and plantation, they are very much planted like, you know, rows of crops, rows of corn or something like that. And, um, as you continue to replant, you continue to let it grow up and you have a very distinct harvest period. Every 15, 20, 40 years, depending on the species, depending on the hardwood, softwood, you're, you're harvesting that and replanting. So you will certainly find plantation forests, but I would say with a lot of the hardwoods, what's happened is we're just managing existing for lack of a better term, old growth forests. And that's where this idea of tagging every single tree, knowing the trees that are there. There is some active um, thinning of the undergrowth uh, as as we would do in a plantation because that just allows more nutrients to go to the trees themselves. If you're pulling back some of that stuff, it allows most importantly those seed trees, those cedar trees to continue to grow up as well because if you can't cut down the, the main tree without having four or five cedar trees around it, you got to make sure that you're fostering the continued growth of the younger trees as well. And that's where kind of clearing some of that brush out of the way comes from. That kind of goes out the window in the rainforest because there's just no amount of clearing that can be done. You can't stay ahead of it. Rainforests are so choked and thick, there's just, there's no way. And for that matter, there's much more of a symbiotic relationship there. It's best to kind of leave it alone, but follow those strict rules of don't fell this tree unless certain um, stipulations are met to make sure that that area that is being taken away will be reclaimed by the jungle without you know any lapse in um, in the canopy. So, starting at that stump, you're looking at an old growth forest. You're looking at uh, a managed uh, plantation. The tree is marked to be harvested at a certain time, as I said before. So say everything has been met. You've got the cedar trees. The tree is mature enough. The tree is of a good stock that it looks like this is going to be a good lumber tree. So you go out and you fell that tree. And again, you have a very specific plan that this tree with this SKU number, this GPS tag is going to be felled on this particular date. Um, if you've ever seen videos of like controlled fall um, in a tree where these guys are able to drop this tree exactly where they want it so they're not hurting the trees around it and the undergrowth, that is all done. Um, there are just some amazing examples of very intricate saw cuts that are made in order to fell a tree exactly where you want it. Certain trees are going to um, pose greater issues when you, when you fell them. A lot of the tropical trees that are really, really huge, big, giant bases across um, can require a substantial amount of cutting in order to get it to fell where you want it to go. Other trees have a problem where the heartwood is so um, uh, so old because the tree itself is so old and the wood itself is so hard that it's brittle that as the tree falls, you can actually get a substantial amount of cracking and tearing out of the center. Actually, not even tropical trees. A lot of ash trees have this problem where you get this tear out right in the middle and it rips a hole out of the bottom of the log and it can cause real problems with like the last, the bottom three feet of that trunk, which could be really good board wood 
has a hole ripped in the middle of it because it wasn't felled properly. So there are um, a lot of thought and consideration, not only to where the tree is dropped, but how to make sure that it falls and doesn't damage the wood itself as it falls. Again, the tropical trees that are very dense and very heavy will often break up as they hit the ground if you're not careful in how you fell that. So a lot of times they'll come in um, with, uh, um, well, it depends on where, but in North America, you can have actually cranes that come in and help to control the fall and lower it down to the ground a little bit slower. In the rainforest, a lot of times what they're looking for is brush that will break the fall, that will slow the fall as it comes down. So instead of necessarily dropping the tree right into an opening where it just free falls all the way down, they will sacrifice some undergrowth and some lower lying branches and things like that in order to slow the fall of the tree. Um, one species that comes to mind, Masarinduba also known as bullet wood. Um, it is renowned for just being so dense and so heavy that, you know, as the thing falls, it will actually crack the, the trunk like all along its length. And as you take that log to the mill, there's a greater amount of waste in that log because so much of it has just been blown to hell as the tree was felled. So you've got to be very, very careful in that felling. So that's a kind of a whole other rabbit hole there that I know maybe 10% of what needs to be known there because I'm not a, a lumberjack. So the tree is felled. The tree then has to be dragged out of the forest. It's not sawn into boards there. There's no you know, capability for that. In some areas of the rainforest, the South American rainforest and a little bit in the African rainforest, there will be a forward camp that is set up. So your concession is broken into grid squares. And if you're working in a specific grid square, you can set up a forward camp with something like a wood miser style bandsaw mill and some tents, literally a camp on the edge of that grid square. So you've got that forward base that you can drag your logs to without having to go a really, really long way. And then they can be broken down either into cants so they can be stacked on a truck easier or in some instances actually sawn into boards entirely right there in that forward camp. That is... I would say these days done to a lesser extent because in the rainforest world, these concessions and the management plans require so much forethought, so much planning, so much organization that it's not really a small business venture anymore. Most of the, the concessions are managed by very well-established companies with large operations that don't really play into that forward operating camp idea which actually plays really well into forest conservation because a lot of times when those small lumber camps are spotted from the air via satellite or drone, a lot of times it's an indication of possible illegal logging going on. So there are, have been quite a few folks that have been nabbed recently because they've got that little wood miser thing set up and you know we know, hey, this plane is, is managed by you know company A that's a you know $100 million organization. They've got a sawmill in these locations here. They wouldn't have a forward operating camp like that in swings the, uh, the the local authorities, nabs those folks, and takes them away in chains. But that's not to say this isn't done entirely. It is just more these days because it's a larger business operation. It's more of an indication of some ne'er do wells doing bad stuff in the forest. But for the most part, the log is felled. It's trimmed of its branches, and it's just trimmed into a log that can be easily dragged. It is dragged out in Asia. 
it's still dragged out by elephants. And, you know, it's funny because those elephants are probably the best treated employees and most valuable employees in those organizations. So for all the people in PETA, they're like, oh my God, the poor elephants. No, they're treated like royalty. And a lot of times if you're getting lumber from, from Far East Asia and say you're buying Far East Asia, <laughs> Southeast Asia, goodness, and you're buying like large slabs, you'll find these like big through mortises on the end of the board. And those are actually chain holes for the elephants to, to drag that, that large log, or sometimes the log is broken into halves or quarters and it's dragged out of the forest via the elephant because that's the best way to do it. You know, there's no roads to get in there with, with a truck or anything like that. There are some uh, low impact machines and things that can get in and can drag a lot of things out. But in a lot of the third world countries, they're still using dragging sledges, like the same things that we used in North America, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s. North American logging has become a lot more technologically advanced, which again goes back to the thing I said before about this is not a small business venture anymore. There are large organizations in North America, organizations with sawmills that can be seen from space, you know, huge organizations that go in with these crazy low impact machines that have big long feet and kind of step their way into place, cut the tree down and the tree never actually falls to the ground. The machine itself is holding the tree up and it lifts it up and it drops it onto a truck and it's hauled away on logging roads. That's some crazy stuff there. But again, you know, it's, it, it, saves the forest floor. It decreases the wear and tear and it decreases the number of logging roads and things that you need. But ultimately, logging roads are a necessity because you can't, even if you could saw all your logs into boards right there where the tree was felled, you still got to get those boards out of there somehow. So there's that transportation of the log back to the nearest logging road so that it can be loaded onto a truck and then that truck will take it to the sawmill nine times out of 10. So as far as how it's gotten to that truck to be loaded, most of the time it's dragged. Horses do the dragging. Sometimes humans do the dragging. Sometimes you've got um, smaller vehicles like ATV type vehicles that do a lot of the dragging. But in the modern silvicultural concession management, it's not like they're going out and felling 300 trees and having to pull them all back. A lot of times it's four or five trees that are specifically selected for that plan. And those are the trees that are felled today. It's not this mass felling that you're seeing um, in like the clear cut operations where you've got huge amounts of logging and loading or excuse me, huge amounts of logs that have to be loaded onto a truck. In that particular case, though, where you're talking about clear cutting, you're bringing the log road, the logging road right up to the edge of that grid square. So you're able to, to load right there. Deep in the forest, in the old growth forests, one or two logs have been dropped and they are dragged out, loaded onto the truck. The truck is then taken out of the concession entirely. It's generally taken to a larger city at that point. If you can get that, that sawmill close to a port, even better. And that's the most efficient operations have all of their sawmills right in a port city. So they're sawing everything into boards. They've got drying yards and things set up there. So there's a, a little amount of drying. Nine times out of 10, when you're talking about um, like African mills, they're drying to a European standard of anywhere from 12 to 18%. Then they are loaded into shipping containers. And if you're again, you're right there at the port, you've got, you know, boat cranes and things like that that can pick up the container, drop it on the boat, and bam, you're off to off to uh, a destination market. These days, the majority of exotic lumber is dried to some extent before it is shipped um, abroad, only because it's less weight and you can 
certainly fit more boards into a container that are drier to equal the same amount of weight because it all comes down to weight. Certainly there's a capacity. There's only so much you can fit into a shipping container, but you can fill a shipping container half full and be over the weight limit for that container. So you do want to make sure that you can get the largest volume in the container while not exceeding the weight. And to do that, it's best done by drying it. These days as well, it is very rare to see logs being exported. Um, I talked about this in the past with CITES. I've talked about this with the Lacey Act. There are more and more company or countries rather that are saying we need a certain percentage of work done in country. So therefore, a log, you know, it's a very small percentage of work. It's felling it and dragging it out of the forest. But if you saw it into boards, there's a greater percentage of work done. And that's what meets those local um, local laws. The exception to this would be veneer logs, where those are specifically being peeled into veneer at a factory somewhere. But you'll also find that there's a large percentage of plywood manufacturers that have peeling mills there in country. Because again, shipping logs on a boat, for that matter, long distances is very inefficient and it's very expensive. So more and more you're seeing that work actually being done at the source or you know, a couple hundred miles from the source in, in a port town or something like that. So we've got a log, we felled it, we loaded it on a truck, we took that truck to a sawmill that's somewhere near the edge of the concession or ideally in a port town. It's been sawn into boards. At the sawing point, you as as a sawyer abroad or domestically, you usually have some inquiries already. You're trying to develop a certain specification. So let's just talk North America. Say you've got customers who want to buy walnut and you've got repeat customers that generally buy walnut and a certain spec. They look for a certain thickness and certain width, or you've got a larger order that you're trying to develop in order to fill and you know that you need to meet a certain width, length and thickness spec. When that log is sawn, we know a lot of this information already. It is rare these days that people are just sawing a log, you know, "Eh, let's just see what happens. You know, I mean, certainly a good Sawyer reads the log and recognizes I'm not going to be able to get the yield because of, you know, a crack running down the pith. I've got to, in order to get the best yield for this particular log, I've got to saw it thusly. But in the back of their mind, they're always thinking, I need to develop this certain specification because if I don't, I'm not going to have a buyer for that wood. And while certain sawmills certainly will maintain an inventory and you can go to that sawmill and say, I'm looking for, you know, X, Y, and Z, and they can look through their stock and pull from there. We're seeing these days fewer and fewer sawmills that are actually maintaining an inventory. What they're doing is just sawing and then selling to um, a retail yard or a distribution yard. They're not actually doing a lot of selling directly out of their mill. That's not to say these don't exist. I can think of four or five, you know, within an hour drive of me that actually are both sawmills and a place where you can go and buy the lumber retail type places. But that model is becoming fewer and further between just because of the fact that it's very difficult to actually make money that way. And the profit margins on lumber are so incredibly small that it makes much more sense to saw to meet a specific spec, knowing that if I can meet that spec, I've already got an order in hand for that. So I don't have to let that material sit around. A lot of times I don't have to worry about drying it because I'm selling it to a distribution yard who's going to do the drying for me. Again, we're talking domestically here where we're not actually having to ship in a shipping container on a boat across the ocean, so we don't necessarily have to dry it right away. 
In the foreign market, for us, the exotic lumber, again, these are sawn into boards and dried, but they also have a very good idea of what the market demands for that particular species, and they're sawing, again, to meet that particular width and length spec. A perfect example of this in South America is Ipe. Ipe is 99.9% of the time used as a decking wood. Decking boards come in 5 quarter by 6, 5 quarter by 4, um, 1 by 6, and 1 by 4. That's pretty much it. Every now and then you're gonna get two by demands for fascia boards, two by sixes, two by eights, two by tens, four by fours and six by six posts if you're making your, your substructure of the deck out of Ipe. But even then, anything two by in, in Ipe or three by in Ipe is incredibly expensive because there's not there very few mills that are actually doing that. But the mill that does that, that's their niche. So when they're sawing logs, moreover, when they're felling trees, the trees in their concession, they're they're looking for material that they know is going to net four by four, six by six timbers, two bys, wide boards, two by twelves, things like that. They're sawing to meet that. And nine times out of ten, there's a lot more waste in the sawing of that log in order to hit those specifications. So you're going to see a greater price tag on that starting at the log. You know, they've got to to manage that forest a little differently than the guy that's just making one by four decking out of their Ipe. I should mention, before I get too far away from the forest, one of the major differences you'll find between plantations and old growth forests is the species side of things. The plantation will often be a mono species where they are, because they're going in and planting themselves, it is the same species. Now, in recent years, this has been kind of poo-pooed, you know, that's bad. If you have a, have a mono species, a blight can come in and, you know, wipe out your entire stock real quickly. The diversification of species in that plantation makes for more robust trees, makes for mimicking more of a natural forest, and therefore, ideally, we can get better material from it. But you are still seeing mono species type plantations. Those generally don't fall in good quality lumber, but it's specifically uh, specifically being managed for like a lesser grade material. You find this a lot in plywood forests, like Luan plywood, the cheap plywood you buy at Home Depot. You don't really need large cuts for that and you can grow, you know, a mono species and harvest the thing all at once. Same thing with softwoods where they are still clear cut is the best way to go. A mono species uh, layout is the best way to go. It is interesting though, because a lot of those mono species plantations tend to be FSC certified. And it's always funny because so much of the silvicultural research shows that mono species is really not the best environmentally friendly thing. Yet, Forest Stewardship Council loves those things. I don't know. FSC is something we're going to have to talk about in the future. If you haven't guessed, I'm not a big fan of FSC. I love what the FSC tries to do. I just don't like the way they execute it. There's a can of worms that I will stay, stay away from until a future episode. So I, I did want to bring that up is the old growth forest and the plantation, there's more diversification. And when you are going out into your concession and felling a tree, you are looking not only, as I said, it's not just hunting for a tree. I know GPS coordinates for the tree that I'm going to fell. I know what the species is. So I know when I'm going into the forest, I'm going to be coming back with an Ipe log, with, you know, um, a bulletwood log, uh, a mahogany log, etc. I know the species are coming back. So that idea of when you're sawing the log into boards, knowing what specifications you have to meet also goes back to knowing what species you've got demand for. And this has caught some attention lately 
in the guitar market with ebony because they're guys going into the forest and knowing that I'm able to cut down these six trees and I'm going to go cut down these six ebony trees, I should say. And they go and they fell them and they'll actually cut them open there in the forest floor because they're looking for that all black ebony to make fretboards. But you can't really tell until you actually crack open that log and see. And the non the, the the streaky stuff the non all black stuff doesn't have the same value or in many cases has no value to the luthier market so those logs get felled by concession plan but cracked open there on the forest floor and realized up oh, i can't get anything for this and they've been left on the forest floor and that's caught a lot of attention lately the point where and this is several years ago but bob taylor of taylor guitars came out and said you know what we're going to start using fretboard material that isn't all black what has previously been a defect, we can't stomach the fact that six trees have just been left to rot on the ground in order to get that one tree to get the all-black fretboard. So, you know, sorry, there's going to be some streaks in your fretboard now. Now, I'd be curious, anybody who is a Taylor user and has paid close attention to Taylor guitars, because I admit I haven't uh, looked at their, at their lines lately, are we seeing more of that streaking in the ebony or are they still all black ebony? You know, this is an example where the industry has always said it's got to be all black. And what you need is a large player in that industry or multiple players in that industry. You need PRS and Gibson and Taylor to all come together and say, we universally are going to be using streaky ebony. You know, let's stop leaving these things on the ground. But it's this happens in a lot of other species as well. You find this a lot with some of the rosewoods and things that you're looking for that perfect example of a tree and you can't tell until you've actually split the log open. So you fell six trees and only drag one out. And that's just heartbreaking when you think about it. There's a tree just left there or they drag all the trees out, but only one of them is sawn into boards or one. They're all sawn into boards, but only one log is actually being exported while the other material stays in countries used to build like shacks for shanty towns and things like that, because it's not um, a species that like the North American market wants to go for. So there's there's a lot of knowledge of what I can actually sell, what the major markets, the European and North American markets are actually wanting, not only species, but grade, but cut. And, and, and dimensional specs. So you're sawing to meet those particular things. Ideally, what happens then is you've got an order for um, African mahogany and you know that you need to develop 85,000 board feet of African mahogany in X thickness, width, and length and you know a sampling of them. Um, once you get that, then you have dried it to a European standard. You've packed that shipping container. That shipping container is loaded onto a boat and it is shipped across the Atlantic to North America. I should bring up the other point where uh, there was a point there where African mahogany became almost unavailable in the market and the price began to shoot up. African mahogany has always been the cheapest species. We often refer to it as a paint grade mahogany, but the price shot up out of nowhere because the port of Gabon had a malfunction. One of their cranes broke down, those huge cranes that load shipping containers onto ships. That crane broke down and they were completely unable to load any boats for two months, I want to say. So basically all the material coming out of Africa just stopped because while there was another port that could be used, it was thousands of miles away and they would have lost money to ship the material to that port it was cheaper to actually just sit there and wait for them to fix the crane. So for a while there, there was no material 
coming out of, of Africa at all. It was all just piling up at the port, waiting for the crane to be fixed, to be loaded onto the ships and sent across to North America. One little thing, well, it's not that little, but you know, those cranes are enormous. That crane breaks down, the port shuts down, nothing ships. And that just completely changes the landscape of the market, drives prices up, or in some instances, takes that species out of contention altogether. People say, well, if I can't have that, I'm going to switch to something else because I can't wait. I can't wait three months for that material to show up. I'm going to have to switch to something else. And once you make the switch to another species, suddenly it's like, well, now I'm just not going to go back to African mahogany. And that actually almost killed the African mahogany trade. This was a crane. I want to say this was maybe five years ago where this happened. Um, And we've started to see African mahogany do a bit of a turnaround. Um, It did the thing where it just became so, the value became so low that... The, the, the people going out in the forest and felling the trees were walking right by the African mahogany. It wasn't worth the effort to actually fell it, drag it out of the forest and saw it into boards. They couldn't make a profit because the price per board foot was so incredibly low. So now your, your boards are on a boat. And like I said, 99.9% of the time, it is a board, a container stuffed with boards, not logs. So that container sits on the ocean for a couple of months, sometimes as little as six weeks, and it lands in a port. Nice of the time, it's coming into Atlantic port. Sometimes you're seeing Gulf Coast ports. Um, Very rarely, depending on where it's coming from, if it's South American material, it can go through the Panama Canal um, and then up into a West Coast port, but it doesn't happen all that much. The West Coast of South America is very mountainous and very, 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 very dry. It's not really lumber land. So most of the lumber is actually the other side of the Andes, the eastern side of the Andes. So when you are cutting down trees, you're not taking them up over the mountains, especially the Andes, because they're pretty tall. Going up over the mountains to the West Coast and departing off you know, the, the, the West Coast of South America up to California. The only way to really ship directly into California is by going through the Panama Canal. Or if you really want, if you want to go on a joyride, go all the way down around, you know, Tierra del Fuego, which just doesn't happen anymore. So most of the time, lumber coming out of South America is going into the east coast of of, uh, the United States or occasionally into the the Gulf Coast, um, uh, Port Arthur, Houston, Texas markets, things like that. And of course, the African material that is headed in North America is coming into the East Coast. So if you guys out on the West Coast going, man, I can't get any lumber. Why is my lumber so expensive? Well, that's because none of it actually comes to you locally. It all lands in this continent on the on the East Coast and then has to be trucked all the way out to the West Coast. Now, There is still some lumber being moved via train, but less and less these days. It actually ends up being cheaper to put it on a truck and drive it all the way across. Um, The the railroad system in, in the United States specifically has seen better days and it just can't be relied upon anymore. So most times it's now on a truck, but that's still substantial amount of distance that needs to be traveled on that truck that adds to the cost of things. Um, so that again explains why some of that West Coast lumber is pretty expensive. So you've got it in, in the port in North America. Ideally, if all things go well, which it never does, it will come off the, off the ship and... Um, the Port Authority, whatever port you're in, Norfolk, Philadelphia, Baltimore, whatever, the Port Authority takes a look at that and says, okay, this material was imported by Company X. That company is notified your material is now in port. Um, it has been inspected. 
So the Port Authority is actually going inspecting these containers, making sure that what was on the bill of lading is what's in that container. This is where um, phytosanitary type stuff um, for botanicals, where CITES checking is being done, where Lacey Act checking is being done as this material comes in. This is definitely lumber. We need to make sure that it, it all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. If that is good, then the Port Authority releases it to you most port authorities have their own independent trucking company that moves things from the port to a destination. They pull in, um, they pick up the, the, the shipping container, they bring it to whomever it is. They bring it to a distribution yard like the one where I work. They bring it directly to a retailer. It's rare that they're going directly to a retailer now because retailers are not often the importer of record. They have not paid to have that material put on a boat and shipped across the ocean. So most of the time is going to a wholesaler distribution yard. That container is dropped off at that distribution yard and you have a certain number of days to empty that container, call the port and say, that container's empty, come back and get it. That can vary dramatically, but generally you're talking, you know, 24 to 48 hours. Um, here's the other thing. If the container sits on the port um, and, and the the Port authority calls you and says, okay, your material is ready to be released and you're not ready for it and say, well, you know, you can't have them. You can't drop it off yet. I need a week. You're going to pay a fine while it sits in the port. It's called their marriage charge. Um, and it will vary from one port to another, but it ain't cheap. It's not cheap at all. So the idea is, is once it's cleared, you want to get it out of the port as quickly as possible. You do not want to play that, pay that demerits charge or yeah, that's going to severely cut into the profit margin. At the same time, once that shipping container is dropped off at your yard, you have that 24, 48 hour period to empty it, call that, that trucking company to come and pick up the empty. And if you exceed that, you're paying demerits there as well. Actually, I'm not sure they call demerits at that point. I think it's just a late fee. Don't quote me on that. But again, there's a fee associated because you've got their shipping container and they've got to come back out and pick it up. And quote, by the way, there's cost to transport, transport it from the port and cost to come back and get the empty container. So there's all these costs along the way. What that means is like when it's um, when it's ePay season for us and we generally have to buy the entire year's supply worth of ePay all at once because of the way rainy system, rainy season and everything works in South America, you can't get the material coming all the time. So a lot of times from November to about February, it's just nonstop ePay coming into our yard to be sold over the course of the next eight months for decking season. So we can have 22 containers coming in one day and 22 containers lined up outside my office window waiting to be unloaded. And my, you know, our unload team is pulling their hair out because they know the longer that sits on the yard, the more the profit margin gets cut on that because we've got to pay additional fines to, to unload it and get it out of there. That's the other thing is if 22 containers are unloaded off the ship at once and you're not ready for them, that demerit charge is going to kill your margin while it's sitting there in the port. And then the other thing I said, if all goes well, which it usually doesn't, if it doesn't go well and the container needs to be inspected further or an additional FDA rep needs to come in, um, uh, our fish and wildlife rep needs to come in, you're paying demerit on that. Even though they haven't released it to you and said you can come get it, they'll tell you, hey, you can't get it yet. Oh, by the way, demerit is kicking in. So it's 
you know, I realize the Port Authority's got to manage things, um, but it, it always feels like I'm being, you know, we're being robbed here because they won't release the container to us, but they're still charging us because the container's sitting there, you know, for one reason or another. But again, this is this goes back to the Lacey Act legislation. If you've got your paperwork in order and you've done your due diligence and you are the importer of record, ideally the material should flow through the port without any delays. But if you bought from somebody that's a little suspect or maybe ends up on a watch list or the 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 exporter didn't dot the I's and cross the T's like we're supposed to, didn't fill out form, you know, 21C-Z, they didn't do it appropriately, it's going to hold things up at the port. You end up, as the importer record, paying the demerits charge, and it becomes kind of a hey, I'm not going to do business with that company again because they they cost me serious money by not doing what they were supposed to do on the paperwork side of things, by not having that CITES import passport, by not having the, the appropriate paperwork, by loading the container improperly. You'll see a lot of times where the container was loaded poorly and it shifts in transit. And as the container is loaded, it becomes unbalanced and they mark it as this has to be inspected. Or sometimes the lock on the door is substandard and the lock breaks. Well, if the lock is broken, it could have been tampered or something could be slipped in there and it's nabbed for inspection. You're still paying demerage on it, but the shipping company didn't do a very good job packaging it, locking it up, and you get screwed. So it's, it's again, it's one of those, oh, we learned a lesson. We're not going to buy from that company anymore. So ideally, now your lumber has passed through the port and the container is now sitting on your yard. In North America, obviously, it's not dried enough. It's dried to European standards and we need to get it down to North American 6 to 8% standards. I'd love to say we could just throw it right into the kiln but that doesn't really go too well. Crack open that container and there's any number of fun things that you may find inside from iguanas to um, mold to good Lord, all kinds of detritus and trash. And you've got to unload the container and it's usually never an easy situation where, you know, the bands around the, 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 the lumber have snapped and the boards are all coming apart or you open the door and boards come pouring out because things have shifted in the container. You know, like they say on the air in the airline contents of the overhead compartment may have shifted during transit. Yeah, that happens a lot. And what we do when the material comes in, we unload it from the container as best we can, because as I said, we want to get it unloaded and get that empty container out of there as soon as we can. We will then restack and, and sticker everything because we know that it's either going to, well, it's definitely going to go in the air dry yard for a certain amount of time. It may only be a week. It might be six months. And then it will go into our kilns and dry down to six to eight percent. But it comes dead stacked. There's no sticker in between it because it, obviously you can put more lumber in a container when you don't have the additional volume of stickers to take up. So we run it across our stacker and it basically takes that bundle of lumber and spreads it out into one um, one layer. And you can kind of do a, a brief inspection. We're not really grading at that point. We're just inspecting to make sure that, that you know, there's nothing horrible. There's not damage in the middle of the pack, or if there's a large amount of, 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 of mold or anything like that, you may find it's at that point that it's noted. And then we are actually stickering it. Lately, we got um, a fancy new thing called a vision tally, which has two cameras that actually scan the material and will give you the total footage, but also give you the, the thickness, width, and length of every board in the stack just by running it in front of the, two, the twin camera system. This is one of the first things we'll do because it actually tells us 
you know, we, hey, we, we paid for, you know, 5,000 board feet in this particular shipment. We got 5,001 board feet. <clears throat> we paid for a certain width spec. We got 90% of that width spec, which is within the contract terms, or we only got 30% of that width spec. So we need to actually submit a claim because we did not get what we paid for. So that's kind of the first step. You don't always see that on, on every single yard, but regardless from there, it's going and gets stacked and, and stickered so that it can go in the air dry yard for a certain amount of time or into the kiln for a certain amount of time before it's even ready to be sold. Sometimes we actually, that lumber as it came out of the shipping container is already sold. You know, it's it's an order that we knew we were going to have to develop over time. That material still needs to be dried. And once it comes out of the kiln, it's already on a truck and being loaded off to a customer. They know that a certain amount of time is going to take. The lead time is going to be required to develop that particular uh, that particular custom order. And it, it never even actually makes it into the inventory sheds. So there's still additional work when it comes out of the container. There's still additional drying, and that cannot be rushed at all. You've paid a lot of money already to get this material on, onto the right shore. Now we need to take our time, air dry it, let it acclimate to the local uh, climate, then put it into the kiln and slowly take it down to 6 to 8%. Once it comes out of the kiln, it's run across our grading chains. Same type of thing where the, the chains actually tip up the pack and spread it out into a single layer. Then the material is actually graded. It's looked at closely on both faces. Any, any defects that may have arisen in the kiln are, are noted at that point. We have an end trimmer that goes and trims off the, the splits that happen in the end of the kiln and also will trim to a specific set length, especially if there's, a, if there's a, already an order for that lumber that needs to be 15 feet long we have an end trimmer it's two circular saw blades <clears throat> that can be set 15 feet apart the board is run through both ends are trimmed at the same time if nothing else we're trimming off as i said the splits that may occur in the kiln then on the other side of that the ends are sealed again if the lumber is already spoken for it is banded packed up ends are sealed loaded on a truck and it's shipped out to whomever ordered that if there is no particular order for that at the time it is um, collected on the other side uh, ends are sealed and put into packs that have a specific SKU number on them and based upon however the particular yard organizes it we again knowing that our customers order certain things we try to group our lumber packs together to make the most sense for the types of orders that we get so we're grouping together certainly by length we're trying to group our length or at least within a small length range together so your eight and wider is all together or your 10 to 12 are all together it's it's labeled on the specific pack a skew number is assigned to that pack and that pack is then put into the sheds so if you've got some um, FAS uh, 90 10 that's 90% heart 10% sap cherry that is eight quarter and is 10 and wider and 12 feet long that all goes into one pack and is set with a, uh, a barcode and that specification on it 90 10 8 quarter 8 and wider whatever i said 12 and wider uh eight to nine feet and it, it all goes in, into its own pack as its own entity its own skew number in the inventory and this is broken down however you however you want to organize it most of the yards that <clears throat> i've seen always put like thickness together 
Um, generally, we'll try to shoot for a width range of two to three inches, and they will try to put all like lengths together so that you can, it's just a lot easier to keep track of it that way. You will find random width and random length packs, but it's very, very rare to find random thickness packs. If you do find random thickness, that's generally a pack that has been picked over time and again to the point where you've just kind of conglomerated four or five packs together and said, here's what's left over. Here's the potpourri pack. So for the most part, they're all going to be the same thickness um, in each pack because the cost, uh, the the price point on those is going to vary differently from one to another. Inventory is going to vary dramatically. You want to keep those as much like with like as possible. At that point, the lumber is ready to be sold. Now, if you're at a wholesale yard, you are buying, you know, the retailers, the individual contractors, the people who are actually using the lumber are buying a certain volume. And, you know, it never, it rarely works out that that specific volume they request exactly equals the pack that you've got banded sitting over in the shed. So when an order comes in for 400 board feet, 100 board feet of that same cherry, <clears throat> our guys go out find the pack that's going to closely match that's going to meet the width length specifications the grade specifications and and pull together the 100 feet that that order requires the 500 feet that order requires they may have to pull it from two different packs Um, a lot of times they're looking for very specific things and you've got to you've got to meet that width spec that length spec out of several different packs that order is then pulled together each one of those packs that the material is pulled from has to be altered the SKU number that says this SKU is associated with 500 board feet of cherry well now it's not 500 board feet anymore now it's 492 board feet that has to be marked and input into the inventory system so if you pulled from 10 different packs to develop that particular special uh, order that's being sold you have to alter 10 different SKU numbers Um, you've broken those packs and they have to be re-bundled together in the inventory system but also uh, you know the total footage is available you also have to pay attention to as i remove those three boards from that pack did that lower the overall grade you know i cherry picked pun intended, I cherry picked the nicest cherry from that pack. And now instead of it being 90% FAS, now it's only 80% FAS. And that can actually affect the overall grade of that pack. And you get to a point where you have to be very aware of this stuff and maybe it needs to be regraded, rebundled and remarked as a different grade. Generally, we're not doing that on an everyday basis. But as we go out and say, we're trying to develop a particular order and you break open this pack and you go, man, I can't find anything I'm looking for. That pack is labeled as this needs to be regraded. The, 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 um, overall average grade has degraded to the point where we can't really call it an FAS pack anymore, which is why for those of us weekend warrior woodworkers who would love to be able to go to a retail yard and pick through the pack, um, or a wholesale yard and pick through the pack. And why a lot of times that's not greeted with the friendliest, most open arms is because we go in and we do cherry pick out the nicest stuff, leaving behind a lesser grade to a point where eventually it becomes very difficult to sell that pack of lumber because it's all lower grade. But the cost of that lumber has not changed. You you paid for it what you paid for it. And if that cost that you paid was in line with an FAS material, but it's been picked over to the point where now it's a number one common, you're going to lose money on that. There's not going to be a way that you can sell that common lumber for a sale price that's going to be greater than the cost. Maybe not. I mean, if you paid really, really low cost, that's great. But most of the time, that's not the case. You know, profit margin on lumber is not huge. You know, pennies a lot of times a board foot. 
So this gets to be a real problem, which then translates back to that kind of wholesale retail thing where it used to be that retailers were buying by the truckload and were maintaining larger inventories. But then they had this lumber that just wouldn't turn because it had been picked over in that retail sales model. And you've got this bundle of lumber here that's just never going to move and you can't sell it without losing your shirt on it. So what's happened is the retail yards have started to tighten up the specifications that they order and order less. So they're doing just-in-time type orders and just filling in the stock. And with smaller size orders means more orders on a truck with more stops. Price of gas has only gone up and it only decreases or increases the overall cost of that material. So when you walk into your retail lumberyard and you pick three walnut boards off the stack, those three walnut boards may have come from three different dealers. They may have landed in that rack over the course of six months or eight months. They may have just come in because they were just ordered in order to fill in. And if they were just ordered in, you know, that small of a quantity, who knows what the cost is on that? So here's the other thing. You go to a lot of retail lumber yards and they have a price list posted, but that price list changes daily, weekly, because of the fact that every time new material comes in, it changes the cost associated with it. And therefore the price has to change to associate with that as well. That's the exotic stuff that's got to go through all that customs and demerge and all that fun stuff. The redrying that happens here, the 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 grading, the the stacking and stickering, the additional grading. A lot of times when a board leaves our lumber yard, it's been graded five different times. Sometimes it's graded specific to a customer demand. So they're they're looking not only for NHL NHLA lumber grades, but then they're looking for grade um, a much, much higher grade, a pattern grade, or no pin knots, or 90-10. You see that a lot on, on domestic boards where it's 90% heartwood. Um, that is way above FAS grade because sapwood is not a defect according to NHLA. So there's other kind of non-official grades that have to be met when the order has been sold as you're developing that particular order. So there's a lot of hands touching that lumber, a lot of loading and unloading and unstacking and stacking before it even hits the retail lumber yard. Not to mention when the, the retailer orders that material and it's shipped and it's dropped off and then, you know, forklift drops it off, then that material has to then be unstacked and loaded into whatever, you know, vertical shelving, horizontal shelving that that retailer uses. So again, there's another instance where it's been touched and moved around. All of that is labor. All of that adds to the cost of things. If we go back to uh, the port and say you're ordering domestic lumber in North America, you're ordering a North American species. Obviously, there's no port there. You know, they're not shipping via boat from, you know, the port of Norfolk down around to the Gulf Coast. Again, it's cheaper to ship via truck. It's even cheaper to ship via rail at that point than putting it on a boat and, you know, moving around that way. So the domestic stuff, both from from Canada as well as here in the United States, is being trucked around. The sawmill, the, all the felling, bringing to the sawmill, it's done usually in a much more efficient situation because we just have a better road infrastructure. And frankly, there's there's a lot more money in the companies that are doing the, uh, the forest management as well. In many instances, the sawmills are actually drying material. It was very common, even as little as 10 years ago, um, to buy green lumber, you know, and, and we as a wholesaler could save a lot of money because we were buying at a much, much lower cost because it was green. We can control quality a lot more by doing the drying ourselves. More and more sawmills realized, hey, I could make more money on this if I dried it myself. And they started drying it and they started getting really good at it. I mean, let's face it, drying lumber is not, you know, it's a pretty well documented science. It's if you've got a good kiln and you've got a good kiln schedule you're following, you, you know, unless you're just not paying attention, you're not going to screw up the material. So as the 
the sawmills themselves got better and better at drying and we could count on the consistency and the quality of their dried lumber, they started doing it more often to the point where you come to them and say, I want, you know, 20,000 board feet of green walnut. And they say, sorry, I don't have any green walnut. I've got kiln dried walnut and I can sell it to you at this price. You know, there was a little bit of adjustment because we were thinking, man, we want it green because we want to, we want to buy it cheaper. But then more and more, we've discovered that, you know, if we can let that um, kiln drying happen at the sawmill, A, the lumber is lighter, so it's easier to actually ship on a truck. There's less work for us to do when it lands in our yard. Yes, we pay a higher price tag for it, but our turn rate can be higher. We don't have to go through the air drying step and the kiln drying step. Um, We don't have to go through the stacking and stickering because it's already been dried. The kiln defects have been taken care of. We will grade it. We will vision tally it, but there's a lot less work on our part. That's why we pay more for it when it comes in. But in, in most businesses, that turn rate of your inventory is so important. You know, if you've got a bunch of material you brought in and it sits on your shelf for six months, that's no good because the, the grade, the quality is only going down over time as, you know, um, expansion and contraction happens and weather happens and all that stuff. You know, you've seen lumber that's been sitting on a lumber yard for 10 years. It's not as pretty as the stuff that's only been sitting there for six months. It just, it happens. So the faster we can turn that, the, the, the more our profit margins will be affected by that. So domestic Basically, most of the domestic lumber is being kiln dried out the sawmill these days. It's not a, not 100%, obviously, and there are certainly markets for green lumber out there, certain species for um, fence posts and things like that. Like black locust, the first thing comes to mind. You, you don't really, you don't want that kiln dried, plus it doesn't kiln dry very easily. So those kind of niche markets are being sold differently as a green material. They're also being sawn differently into fence posts and decking posts and things like that, because that's what the market demands. So you're going to find little eccentricities depending on the species and depending on how the market actually wants to use that material. But for the most part, with your typical hardwood lumber, it is being dried at the sawmill, shipped on a truck to um, whether it be a wholesale distribution yard like where I work or direct to a retailer because the retailers are now buying direct from the sawmills. That didn't used to happen as much. It still doesn't happen to some extent. We as a wholesaler um, can develop usually better quality stock because we've been working with these sawmills because we buy in a larger quantity. We're buying in a truckload quantity. The retailers, again, as I said before, aren't really buying in truckload quantities anymore. And the sawmill just doesn't really want to deal with that. Unless you're going to go and pick it up in your own truck and bring it back, they don't really want to deal with those small orders that much anymore. You're also finding a lot of sawmills that have a small retail section. Those are great. As a weekend woodworker, if you can find a guy that actually saws his own stuff and sells at retail, you can usually get some pretty cool, um, great prices, and you usually get some pretty cool species as well. But for the most part, I think it's safe to say that those sawmills are, are trying to move the material as fast as they can, as large a quantity as they can. And that's the wholesale yards that are really buying in that particular model. As a retailer, unless you want to buy, buy the truckload, your only option is really to buy from a wholesale yard. We would prefer you buy from us as a truckload as well because it, it saves costs all around, which is why the price is going to vary depending on how much you buy. You know, we get that all the time. Well, how much does, you know, uh, four quarter walnut cost? And the answer is how much do you need? And it's not a matter of trying to rob you, you know, hey, the more you pay, the less it's going to be. That's just the fact of fact of life. You know, if you only buy an eighth of a truckload, we can't send out an eighth full truck. That's not efficient. Um, 
But if we can fill that truck up and the stops are all on the way and it's an efficient route, we generally can do it for a good cost. But think about as well, if you're only buying an eighth of a truckload and we've got to go out and break six packs in order to do that, there's a fair amount of labor that's involved in just developing that order and getting it ready to ship. But if you buy buy the truckload, it's a matter of taking a forklift up, picking up packs of 500,000 board feet, loading onto the truck, and you're good to go. Much less labor is involved. One stop on the truck, you can save a substantial amount of money when you do that way. But a lot of people don't buy that way anymore. As I said earlier, they don't want to maintain that inventory. So you've bought 200 board feet of cherry and 200 board feet of walnut and 200 board feet of white oak to stock your shelves in your retail lumber yard. And maybe you developed a, a total thousand board foot order, but it's six different species to make that thousand board feet. There's still a lot of labor and time required to develop that material in order to be put on a truck. And you've barely filled the truck. So you might have to wait a little longer for that material for that truck to fill up, you know, because obviously we're not going to fill a truck halfway. Um, half full with stuff in the Midwest and half full for the West Coast. It doesn't make sense to send one truck to the Midwest and then all the way out to the West Coast. You're going to send one truck to the West Coast, one truck to the Midwest, one truck to Florida, one truck to New England, et cetera. And you've got to fill those trucks up. So there's a lot that goes into that. If you are a retail yard that is buying direct from a sawmill and you've got a good deal where you can you know, fill up a, a smaller truck, fill up a flatbed, things like that, you will find a lot of retail yards that can get a better price because they are buying direct from a sawmill. Still, when you go to that retail yard, unless they are a sawmill themselves, there have probably been three to four people who have touched and done something to that lumber before it landed on the retail rack, which is why you're paying the board foot price you're paying for it, because there's so many people upstream that have actually touched and manipulated and dried and sawn and felled and done so many things to that particular board. So that journey from forest to board is quite complex. The supply chain is filled with a lot of different places. Players, a lot of government entities levying their fines, a lot of taxes being levied along the way, a lot of labor, a lot of labor that is being done to make that board ready to sell and a lot of time. Think about the time that can pass from when a log is felled in Africa to when the board is actually sold here in the United States. It's usually, it's at least nine months, but more than likely it's 18 months. So there's a huge amount of development time there. All that time is money, right? So yeah, hardwood's expensive, but maybe if you have a better idea of just how much that board went through to finally be a board that's ready to sell, you might understand in order to get good quality boards, I've got to pay that price because of all the stuff that's done upstream. So we just barely, barely touch, scratch the surface of all the stuff that can happen to a board, but it's important that you recognize there's a lot of things that go on. So if you have questions on this, let me know. Otherwise, that's all I got for this episode. So thanks for listening and go buy some lumber.